With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hey everyone, welcome to the OFD Book Cast. I'm your host, Joshua Voles, Site Manager, Emperor, Supreme Warlord, and Defender of the Faith over at OneFootDown.com on the SB Nation Network. And that's right, folks, bringing the book cast back into full effect after a, a couple of, uh, of shaming comments from Jude Seymour, uh, and then him starting the uh, book club <laughs> uh, over this last week. Uh it's it's time to uh, I gotta finish this. Uh, if you don't know, if you have any idea what I'm talking about, back uh, the beginning of COVID, back in March, uh, which is so long ago, uh, but uh, I started a you know let's I, let's do something, let's do a little something more, uh, and I thought you know doing a, a little podcast uh, about some Notre Dame books would be great. I thought I'd get through like. Maybe like three books from then through, uh, you know, through the summer up into the season. I did not get through one book. Um, it's just you know scheduling and and really just you know whatever, man. COVID really beat a lot of us down, so just didn't have much of an opportunity. And then and then you know that once the season kicks in, the season kicks in, and then it's it's all hands on deck for that. So let's, let's get back to it. Let's finish it up. And, and who knows, maybe um, maybe I'll be able to, to start another one, uh, bef- you know, so we can all have something else, something to do in this offseason. Uh, there's about, I think, I think there's six episodes uh, of the book cast uh, th- that, that are recorded. I think the last one was like in May. So yeah, it, it's been a few months. Um, so if, if you are... If, if you don't know about this, if this is be the first time you've you've listened to a to the OFD Bookcast episode, maybe go back and uh, and listen to uh, listen from the jump. Um, maybe add something I should have done so I can remember, you know, a little bit more of the format that I that I had that I had chosen uh, to go about all this. Um, but that that would just be more wasted time. Uh, so after after a quick refresher. Uh, again, this is uh, this is for the book Notre Dame's Greatest Coaches, written by uh, Stephen Singular and Moose Kraus, um, which is kind of a, a, a kind of like a thirty three percent, maybe more, maybe like a forty percent uh, biography of of Moose Kraus, uh, and then sixty percent talking about Rockney, Leahy, Barsegian, and Holtz, um, and so. You know, it, 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 I've, I've read this book. I, I've said in the first one, I've read this book, I don't know how many times, countless times. I got it for Christmas and uh, uh, on Christmas in 1993 uh, when I was 15 years old in high school. Um, I don't know how many, you know, I've read it countless times. So, you know, just uh, this is kind of a refresher, like like rereading it. And it, it is funny uh, to uh, to go through this book with a, you know, to put it, to put together some bits, some tidbits to share with you, with you. Uh, whereas, you know, and I, I, that would be with any book really. Um, but you know, what information is interesting to you and what you retain and use and, and learn from, um, and then try to figure out if that's something that anybody else is interested in. Um, I, I guess as a, 
as a writer and as a, uh, you know, as a website manager, maybe I should, that should be second nature, but it's, it really isn't, it never is an easy task uh, to figure out what you, the reader, listener, uh, are interested in. Uh, so that's, it's a, always a challenge. Uh, so, you know, I, I say that as a preamble to, maybe this isn't your cup of tea. Uh, I, I hope that it is. Uh, cause I think there's some kind of fun, interesting stuff in here. Uh, but, uh, you know, if it's not, Hey, we, there's still the regular OFD podcast, which by the way, is a reason why that, uh, this, this, that the book cast is, is happening again right now. Um, Again, we're, we're away from our two-episode uh, a week schedule from the season. Um, and this week, I guess normally we would we would do our OFT podcast. Uh, we record it Sunday night. Uh, we're going to record that Wednesday night instead this week. And so that kind of gave me a little bit of an opening uh, to, to, to kind of kick myself in the ass a little bit and to do this again. Uh, so hopefully this will get some more normality uh, out of the podcast schedules and I'm not talking about like the, like OFD podcasts, you know, Sunday and Monday nights kind of alternating. It's kind of how we do things. Mostly everyone, you know, we'll kick it to a Wednesday or what, whatnot, you know, just kind of how things work for us. Uh, but getting a second episode, second, something up, uh, whether that be a book cast or an off the rails, or maybe just a, a random interview, um, you know, with somebody, uh, you know, I, I have some other ideas in mind, uh, so it, it all falls under the uh, the scope of the uh, of the OFD podcast, uh, but uh, so yeah, so ho- hopefully we get we get enough stuff out there for you guys, um, you know. So you have something to, you can listen to my raspy ass voice uh, <laughs> on your way to work or whatnot. Um, and just a reminder too, please get over to Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating, leave us a review. Uh, five star ratings are just like absolutely gold for us. That, that helps us, uh, when people are out looking for Notre Dame podcasts that puts us up there with, with everybody else. And again, we're, the OFD podcast is a little bit different. Hey, fuck it. It's a lot different than, than, than what everybody else got on. We can say that other, other Notre Dame podcasts may try to sell a little bit of their difference. Uh, and they're really the same as a lot of other ones. This one is a is a lot different, um, as far as I know. I listen. We listen to a lot of them, uh, and I'm this. That isn't a knock on anyone else. It really isn't. Um, I just think that we we look at things and do things a little a way differently than everybody else. So it's fun. It's fun. But leave us that rating review and w- whatever review that you leave on Apple Podcasts, I will read on the next OFD podcast. It's a, it's a promise to you. Uh, to have your voice heard, uh, not only by us, but by our other, all our listeners. Uh, you let us know what you love, what you like, uh, or what you hate, uh, what pizza, I mean, just whatever, beer, cocktails, whatever, whatever you put on there, I'm going to read. Uh, and we've had some unfortunate incidents where I've had to slander good names of, uh, of wonderful things. Uh, but, uh, it's all in good fun. All right, as I feel my mouth already getting dry uh, and sitting down to record this and, and one of those non-pause things that I, I can't, I can't, uh, uh, I can't just get up and get something to drink. So let's get this, <laughs> let's get, I'm absolutely dry over here. So let's get this thing rolling. Um, we, are, we are through 14 chapters of this book. Um, and so we, we get to the, to the 15th chapter and, and where we last were at, Notre Dame had just had a, uh, a brutal loss to Stanford in the 1992 season. And the 1992 season is kind of one of those lost years where there was just so much incredible talent on that team. It's, it's hard to imagine that they didn't win a national championship. I mean, that, that you could say that a lot from 89 to, you know, to 92. Again, at OFD, we count 1993 as a national championship. But that time between 89 and 92 is like, oh, my God, you know, there's like, how is there not one more, two more, uh, you know, attached to the to the whole thing. So um, but anyways, uh, it, things 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 are a little dicey. And, you know, this is old school kind of life, uh, you know, football coaches and, and, and how they deal with losses. 
And so the chapter begins with, with Moose showing up to practice. He, he's kind of giddy about this. So, you know, he was kind of hoping for, for Lou Holtz to, to be in, in, in what you could say a mood, uh, kind of, you know, basically pissed off tyrant uh, is what Moose was looking for. And he kind of felt like, like, you know, he's yearning for that. Like he, he, that he was, you know, needing to hear the, that kind of, that kind of passion and that kind of, uh, um, fervor that you, that you would get from a head coach like Lou Holtz after a loss. And, you know, to some degree, uh, you know, that, that's, that's how it is for many, many coaches. But I just think, I just thought it was interesting that, you know, Moose, it seemed like in this chapter, like he was excited to get to practice. He wanted, you know, unlike some of the players probably who were dreading going in there uh, to have to deal with, with the loss and, and the, the week ahead. Um, I, I think they were getting ready for Pitt that week. Uh, yeah. Moose was pumped. He was ready to go. Uh, so, you know, it talks about him, <laughs> you know, walking by uh, Rick Meyer going on in and, and to the Loftus, which, which by the way, Back then, the Loftus was the new thing on campus. It was the new thing. Uh, so this was a, you know, like, oh, my God. Holtz is taking him indoors to the artificial turf. Uh, it's kind of funny how we how long ago this really was. Um, yeah, yeah, you walk by Rick Meyer, and as he's smoking a cigar going into the Loftus, uh, you know, telling him, you know, hey, you'll get him. Uh, so... When we talk about the brutal nature of football, when you talk about, like, when you get real visceral, when you, when you, when you talk about football being a violent, archaic, barbaric kind of sport, a lot of that's, a lot of that's from, the, from what goes on in the trenches. Offensive line, defensive line action. And for many Notre Dame fans, you know, that really puts you into um, what is arguably one of the greatest uh, offensive line coaches of all time, and that's Joe Moore. Like, look, the, the best offensive line award in college football is called the Joe Moore, Moore Award. Uh, and for Notre Dame, Joe Moore was um, – it's a – there's a greatness thing attached to it, and then there's kind of like an an embarrassment thing attached to it. You know, the greatness of the times with Holtz, and then with Davey when it when uh, when there was the lawsuits because Joe Moore had sued uh, you know Notre Dame and, and Bob Davey for letting him go basically because you know saying he was too old. Um, there, there's a lot of Joe Moore stories out there, and and this is not going to be the podcast where we get into it. Um, Maybe that's something, maybe that deserves an episode all on its own one day. Um, but uh, that, that's not what today's going to be about. But if you can imagine all the stories you've heard about Joe Moore and, and the brutal nature of what he does, um, what, he, what he was doing as an offensive line coach in Notre Dame, imagine going in after a loss. Imagine going in after a loss to this man, to this no bullshit to this no nonsense to this this small man but large like just this great this great thing like Joe Moore like Harry Heastand is, is talked about in this manner with his players and I would say Joe Moore is probably like times five when it comes to the toughness factor uh, so this was this was lining up to be you know, just a brutal time for the offensive line this this week of practice after the Stanford loss, getting ready for Pitt. Um, so, where did he, you know, let's uh, here, here. The players at, at the end of the field were engaged in blocking drills. A number of them stood off to the side, helmets in hand, sweating and heaving from the workout. They watched as two huge linemen faced each other in a crouch, shoulder to shoulder and nose to nose, waiting to collide. Go, Joe Moore shouted, and the linemen went at one another with a ferocity that could be heard and felt 30 yards away. In 1988, when Holtz was looking for a new offensive line coach, he talked to a number of people about the best man to hire. Jackie Sherrill, who coached at Pittsburgh, Texas A&M, and Mississippi State, 
said without hesitation, Get Joe Moore. Moore had been one of Cheryl's assistants at Pitt. Other t- others told hold similar things. He took the recommendations and offered the job to Moore. The 60-year-old has a gruff voice, a weathered face, and sad eyes with bags under them. When he yells, he sounds twice as big as he is and half as old. Everything about him conjures up the Marines. Over the past half decade with the Irish, he's consistently produced one of the best offensive lines in the nation. Um, let's see here. Okay. Moore had, been, had once been a running back at the University of Tennessee, but later decided he spent 17 years as a high school coach before moving on to college that the offensive line is one of the few areas where you can make a player better. He has only one inviolable rule with his linemen. Don't ever ask me how well you've played or try to influence my opinion of your performance. You have no say in that. I'm the one who makes the judgment. And he doesn't care for the questions from the players during practice sessions. Questions are for team meetings. At practices, he likes action. Go! Moore shouted. And the same two young men went at it harder than before. Uh, and so it, it's kind of a, a, a quick look at Joe Moore uh, in this time. And, and more than that, this chapter shows a, a warrior in, in Moose Krause, an old, the old warrior in Moose Krause, watching Joe Moore develop new age warriors uh, as, you know, as Moose is an old man. It, it's kind of, it, look, I've said, I think Stephen Singular is, is not, I don't think he's a very good writer. Uh, the, the book is, is a hard read at times, uh, the way he hops around. Um, and he gets, he gets these moments of, of really, and we're going to get into that, um, of kind of, Flowerly, flowerly language, uh, and he gets into uh, kind of he taps he tries to tap into the poetic side of football, and I get the sense uh, that that Stephen Singular wasn't a um, wasn't much of a football guy, um, honestly, because uh, the way he describes a lot of these things uh, kind of seems like yeah no shit or or, or a little over the top, um, so. Uh, but it, it's just, it, it really is an interesting look. I, it, it shows the way Moose, or he talks about the way Moose uh, reacts to the blocking that he's watching in practice about the, about the bleachers shaking from him laughing and, you know, choking down that cigar. Uh, it, it's, it really is, uh, man, it, it really is something. Um <laughs> I mean, he he really gets he really gets into it. So, uh, says they. Uh, sorry about the pause here. It, it's it, it just me. It's just me. All right. Um, but yeah, I mean, again, he's uh, he says you know, this looks like the old days. These kids need a good kick in the butt. I told you, Lou might be a little upset today. I mean, he's. This is what he wanted. This was his. This was Moose's fix, um, and and you get the sense too that, you know, losses. Notre Dame football losses affect fans uh, in lots of different ways. I mean, some fans take this shit like extremely personal, and their whole week is fucking ruined. Now, you know, and coaches do that as well in a sense, but I mean. Think about it from, it's a hard perspective to, to really wrap your head around with Moose Krause. You know, this is a retired athletic director who was once uh, an All-American lineman, All-American basketball player, All-Amer- I mean, just, you know, assistant under Rockney, under Leahy. I, this guy, again, Mr. Notre Dame, this is Notre Dame. And so it, watching the way he takes losses or, or, you know, reading about how he took these losses is interesting because, you know, if you're taking it harder than Moose Krause, maybe you're, t- maybe you're taking things too seriously. You know what I mean? Like if Moose Krause 
is just uh, if he's able to move on, still be a little pissed. You know, he's lo- he's looking for some revenge, but he's moving on. Uh, I I think you should move on with with what you're doing. <laughs> you know, I you know Moose Kraus uh, allowing all these different coaches that he's he's been around in his life. You know, allowing the coach to be the coach, and, and to say you know that they to basically say you know they know better uh, than he does about what they want for their team. You know that. Speaking to everybody out there, myself included, you know, if Moose Kraus says that, thinks that, maybe we should, you know, re-examine uh, a little bit in the way and how we look at this. Not not to be like, like to just fall in line with everything, but to be like stupidly overly critical about things. Uh, it's kind of insane when you think about, you know, that you're working in a, you know, in a title office. Uh, trying to be an offensive coordinator, you know what I'm saying? Uh, <laughs> it it is kind of one of those, you know, that that armchair quarterback kind of things. Um, so I just I don't know. I just I, I always find that fascinating, and I, I find Moose fascinating in that sense, and just how much he really, um, or how he reacts to, to these games. Um, you know, it, the book talks about. You know, kind of like the strain that, that that game in particular, but all these seasons have really have had on, um, you know, on Holtz and, and on Notre Dame coaches in general. Um, you know, but it talks about how Holtz, you know, was different as far as, you know, his, his media persona and you know, his locker room persona, you know, and how those those didn't really, in, you know, entwine. Uh, but you know it does talk about you know the expressions that Holtz would make across the across the field to you know opponents like basically like he, he's ready to go out and kill somebody, um, you know and it says you know you need a, a little rabid dog uh, in you with all these top coaches and and, and you did get that with Holtz uh, when he was out in the field, um, so let's see here's a, here's another passage I wanted to read. This kind, this the, I mean, I'm telling you, this was a whole session of just of Moose uh, getting his good feels on by watching Joe Moore coach offensive linemen to kill each other. Uh, this kind of blocking is what I used to teach. Mooch was saying for years and years back then, the players weren't trying to block each other, but me. We just beat the hell out of one another all day. I blocked 10, 12 guys of practice. I never lifted weights, but I was pretty strong. In those days, we didn't have a weight room. Another pair of young men were lined up next to Moore. He walked around behind one of them, and as he yelled, Go! He placed his shoe in the huge fellow's postier <laughs> and gave it a mighty shove. The blocker rushed headlong into the opponent, who was just as big as he was, and was determined and under just as much scrutiny. They smashed together and dug in, the grunting and the impact reverberating up from the field to where Moose was watching, reaching him and stirring something within the old man. He smiled and shook his head and tapped his cigar ashes near his shoe. Oh, boy, he said. Aren't you happy to be here and see this? This is just like when Leahy was coach. So I'm saying it was, it's, a, it's a yearning uh, for, that, for that battle, for that, that brutality on the field. Again, M- Moose was giddy to get to this post-loss practice. It, was, uh, it, it really was quite something. Um, oh, man, I just... Oh, so and then no, this is where, um, and maybe I will just read it. This this is where uh, Singular gets tries to get very deep and poetic uh, about football, and it's not that he's wrong. It's just that I don't think that this is. I don't think that he's right. A hundred percent right. Um, because I don't think that the person that he's, that he's kind of quoting here, uh, is, is accurate either for, for the modern era. Um, and so l- let me read it and, and, and we'll get into just a little bit. Um, okay. For a moment or two, there was a sensation in the air that you were not watching a football practice in 1992, but something else entirely. 
an ancient male ritual unfolding before you, the sort of thing that we often think of as having taken place in more primitive times. The elders of this particular tribe down on the field were instructing those who were on the threshold of adulthood, and the older men had been given the complete authority to do so. They could say whatever they wanted and do whatever they felt was appropriate with their charges, because it was understood that all of them were involved in something larger than their own individual lives. The younger ones weren't simply learning how to become members of their own group. They were being initiated into the duties and responsibilities of manhood. An implicit level of trust between the young and the old made all this possible. The sensation passed, but some part of it lingered, and with it came a peculiar glow of satisfaction, very unexpected and hard to account for at first. You had the feeling that what was taking place at practice was not only connected to its own revered tradition, Notre Dame football, but to something much deeper and richer than that, something that went back further than anyone could possibly remember. In The Power of Myth, a show that ran on public television and was later published as a book, Joseph Campbell had said that what was missing for contemporary life and what had become the underlying source of many of our troubles was that modern society had lost its ability to turn boys into men through meaningful rituals. Long ago, he said, tribal elders had done this by putting their youth through intense physical hardships or by humiliating them in a group setting or even by cutting them and leaving a scar. Young men were given the chance to show their strength and courage to prove they had qualities to be adult males in the tribe. Some were weeded out. The purpose of the rituals was not to harm anyone, but to let the youths know they were no longer children. They were members of a social order and had the obligation to exercise self-control toward themselves and others. Without these things, Campbell had said, young men can easily become lost in their impulses. Holy shit, what was that? Uh, <laughs> young men can be... Uh, where I, damn it, man, this is, this is not a good podcast. <laughs> uh, da, 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 da. Without these things, Campbell had said, young men can easily become lost in their impulses towards sexual chaos or violence. The rituals help form the basis for what is perhaps the oldest known form of male bonding. In our time, the turn has become cliche, at times a joke, but it was important in certain ancient cultures, and there is still much evidence that, we're evolved, that we've evolved a great distance away from what we once were. Civilization, it, it has been said, is the thin veneer over what made us what we are. Now, I understand that this is how a lot of people feel. Uh, I think it's a, I think it's like mostly horseshit. Um, you know, I'm consider myself a pretty tough guy, I guess. Fuck. I don't know. Um, but (laughs) it's, it it really is. It it does borderline on the, on the kind of like the toxic, the toxic masculinity effect of what's going on, uh, in our, in this age today. Uh, I think there are certainly as a, as a father of, of two boys, um, it, the, something I struggle with, you know, is, is how to make them men. But I think, you know, the, what makes men, men, I, I think is, is different. It, is, it has changed, uh, over the years. You know, this isn't, I mean, I don't care what they say. This isn't fucking ancient Greece. I don't need, uh, my sons to be able to go out and kill a couple of wolves and, and you know, at, before the age of 13 and, and make it back uh, home in the middle of winter. I mean, if, I mean, th- th- but this is, so you cannot, you cannot apply the same type of philosophy like wholly to 2021 and beyond. I mean, you just can't, it's not, it's, it's not the same. It's different, but there are, there are characteristics of, of men being men, I suppose that, that, you know, that should be there. And that's about decency. It's about hard work. Uh, it's about honesty. It's about, you know, you know, the, you know, fortitude, the, the, the will to, to keep moving. Uh, I mean, those types of things, but the, that doesn't have to be in football. That doesn't have to be wrapped up in, in some type of ritual, uh, so anyways, again, Steven Singler, he just, he really, 
he really digs deep for, he, I don't know if he was trying to go for some kind of prize in this book, which, I mean, come on, man. Uh, but he, he does go on these tangents uh, throughout this book. So bringing up Joseph Campbell, who, who I actually enjoy quite a bit, you know, talking about the heroes and, and uh, you know, the power of myth. There, there is actually some good stuff in there, but I mean, just that part alone uh, is, it's a little over the top, man. It just really is. Uh, but again, it, it does, it does, he's doing it to help describe Moose and it, this overall male figure that, that Moose was. I mean, we're talking about, you know, the hardest of hard asses, uh, but in a sense of, but a respectable one, a man who, you know, who cared for his family, a man who, um, you know, was just a, bru- a brute, a pure brute. Uh, on the field, uh, it, you know, a, a man that, that that had to develop himself uh, into a civilized person from the streets of Chicago, uh, you know, up through South Bend, you know, going. The man's been through a lot, but he is a he really is a the duality of, of his nature is something else. Um, and I think that more or less, I think that's what he's trying to get at is is the overall person that Moose is. And he, and he goes on to talk about, you know, how he's, you know, not a saint. And there are some things that, you know, about Moose that, you know, by today's standards, you know, wouldn't cut, which I, I mean, I guess most white men from the twenties and thirties coming in, you know, today's standards of 2020, 2021. Yeah. It, it's not going to be that I mean, like, your grandpa was not perfect. All right. Uh, most of your grandfathers out there had had said some shit or done some shit. Um, it, you know, and I'm not apologizing for any of them out there. I'm not saying any of it was right, but to, to think, to think that some of these, these figures from our past didn't have flaws, like these great heroes of our past, as if they didn't have flaws is, is completely wrong. And Moose Krause, who's one of my bigger heroes, uh, you know, not just with Notre Dame, but just, uh, you know, as, you're growing up when I mean, I was 15 reading this book about Moose Krause. I'm like, Oh my God, this man is amazing. Uh, you know, and I've, I've looked at him as, as one of those, those people, you know, the, one of those people that have, you know, affected you as far as, you know, what was their life like? You know, I don't So anyways, <laughs> but that's what, the, that's what this chapter was, was basically trying to get across was, it really was getting across that, um, you know, Moose was just, was a, was a, a very complicated figure, um, but, you know, easy to understand, I guess. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe that makes it more complicated in itself. Maybe I'm just talking completely out of my ass, which is entirely possible, and that's fine. But I did, I so I found the chapter here. Um uh, let me read this. It says part of the aura that moved around Moose was just that you sense that he managed to balance these forces within himself, the sweetness and the darkness alike. He still enjoyed doing good and unexpected things for other people, even for strangers. And he still enjoyed watching a certain kinds of violence, but this came about in appropriate ways at football games. He found his own balance and contentment. So, you know, leave it at that. Uh, so I just, I thought it was, a, I thought it was an interesting chapter. Again, I just think it's funny that how giddy he was to show up to a Joe Moore to a, to a Notre Dame practice, and he talked about you because know, of Holtz, but but he's sitting there in front of Joe Moore because that's the one that's going to you know lash out the most, I suppose. So he, he got his kicks in that way. So I thought that was fun. Uh, so then moving on to the next chapter, uh, and we're doing chapters fifteen and sixteen. So and this one's it's it's got a strange title i guess in, in my mind it's the end of it the end of era and it really doesn't talk a lot about the end of era it it starts to and you know talking about um you know his 11th season you know in 1974 following the 74 season uh which was his 11th at Notre Dame uh you know it kind of goes into He's, you know, talks about, you know, it was like being on a treadmill. Uh, blood pressure was high, taking medication. He was exhausted, you know, all these things. Um, and, you know, and he told his wife he, he was done. 
and he needed a break and he you know he didn't even want to be on he didn't want to be on TV he, he, he needed that one year break in between whatever it was um and and we all know you know Eric didn't coach again uh, and I mean and I always thought it, I think it's interesting because it's like if you're not going into the NFL if you're not going to coach in the NFL how do you coach after Notre Dame as a head coach. And what's interesting is, is that, I mean, up until just, you know, I guess it's a long, I guess it's, we're a lot longer than that. But I mean, Willingham was the first one. Or not, well, it was the first one I kind of thought of. Holtz obviously went on to South Carolina. I think it was a, I can't remember how many years break that was. But you, you just don't think about it. You think it kind of like, South, uh, Notre Dame being the last stop for these coaches. Uh, and then, you know, you kind of had these string here of, um, you know, of Willingham and, and then even Weiss, you know, at Kansas, uh, Bob Davey, you know, <laughs> stayed out of the game for so long. Uh, and fi- you know, finally, you know, service in New Mexico and the man uh, couldn't even make it to South Bend for when, <laughs> for when they played us. Uh, but again, there was this, there was this exhaustion with Era more than anything else, and exhaustion can lead to all sorts of pro- problems just medically. There was a, this exhaustion with him that just took him down. I mean, took him down and like ended his career. Um, and the same thing can be said about Frank Leahy. Uh, I mean, the exact same thing can be said about Frank Leahy, and Frank maybe even more so. And we'll talk a little bit about a little bit more about Frank uh, in this uh, in this chapter because it is a good comparison. Um, Holtz was different, and uh, he Holtz managed his emotions a lot better than both Era and and Frank. Uh, Frank didn't manage his emotions worth a shit, period, at all. And you know, it just. It, it was brutal. The, the 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 brutality of your own self, uh, you know, expectations is what is what hits on him, and that's what it was for for Frank and for Era. Um, the book says here, as with Rockney and Leahy, when people talk about prestiging now, they recall more than anything else in his intangibles, his intangible qualities, his fervor and passion, his single mindedness and intense focus and will all things that swirl around a person and can be felt but not directly seen. When the man himself is no longer present and all the games are over and his coaches and players have scattered across the nation, what lingers is the spirit he brought to the job. Which is true. Uh, but it, it's it's even greater than that. I mean, it's just... That passage kind of spoke to it as like kind of like how you remember it in a way. But it's also like that's how it takes you out. It's how it takes you down. Um, you know, and we'll never know with Rockney what, you know, because of the plane crash, you know, how, how that was going to go. Rockney seemed more, I don't know, he, he, it, you know, I'm not an expert on, on Rockney at all, but uh, it just seemed more in, in tune with his emotions with the game. And I guess, you know, when you're winning an 881 clip, there, you know, there's there, those losses aren't, you're not getting those losses as much, uh, but, you know, the losses are brutal. But anyways, um so this this whole chapter is the end of era, but it really just like brings it back to um, his t- like his time at Notre Dame and just how you know how passionate he was, how kind of crazy he was in a way. I mean, there's some we'll get to there's some kind of some messed up things he does here. He's he, intense in everything, um, is I guess what you could say. Um, let's see here says. The pressure era felt at Notre Dame was largely self-imposed. He never got it from Moose Krause or the administration. He beat himself up when they lost and took it very personally. He felt that the product on the field was an extension of himself. Lou Holtz is the same way. Every Saturday afternoon in the fall is a final exam, and you're responsible for 120 young men who play football for you. And those kids are 18, 19, 20 years old, and they're expected under the national microscope to be nothing less than excellent. That's the standard here. People don't come to Notre Dame to kill time. I love that line. People don't come to Notre Dame to kill time. You're absolutely right. Uh, and, you know, I, as someone who did not attend Notre Dame, I, I, 
but you know, talk to enough alums. It's it's just different, man. It, it's it's just different. I I, do, I love that phrase. They don't come to Notre Dame to kill time. You know, the the whole thing about you know graduating in four years, um, like here is your plan. That, that's that shit is took seriously at Notre Dame. You know, not just you know not just with you know the athletic people that don't talk, but just coming in there as a you're not going in there to be uh, milling around with your majors. You know, and people do it. I mean, you're going to change your your life direction because I'm shit. For anyone at 17, 18 years old to, for all everyone to have it figured out about what they want to do with their life is a joke, and it's actually a a sick joke that we play on, um, on human beings. But you know, the kids at Notre Dame, they're they're self driven. They're they're you know, or legacies <laughs> who are telling whose parents are telling them what to do, uh, but you know, to get it done, and so that kind of all makes sense there. Um, that's why when you talk about like locker room fits and cultural fits in Notre Dame, you know, some of these, you know, these players that come in there, yeah, they needed football to get into Notre Dame for sure. But that same type of drive and same type of will to succeed in life uh, is very much the same with them as it is with, um, you know, Joe Mc, you know, Joe Mc, uh, McSorley you know, engineering major. It's there, there is a, that, that, that is why that, the whole cultural fit and all that, that makes sense. You know, when you're, when you're recruiting guys, um, it just, it just does. Uh, so it, it kind of goes on through some of these stories about, uh, about what era does. And I try to pick out a, a few that I thought were, were kind of funny, um, or just, you know, interesting in itself. Uh, it says, what I remember most about Era was his intensity during practices and games. You try to stay as far away from him as you could. We lost four games in the three years I was at Notre Dame. Uh, and this is, I think this is uh, Bob Gladeau. He says, we ate our meals in a dining hall, and after a loss, Era would sit there near the door and not touch his food. He would stare at every player in the eye as you came in to eat. Those big, dark, Armenian eyes coming right at you. We'd watch him and whisper, he still hasn't eaten. He's waiting for the next player to come in. As you were sitting there trying to eat, he would come up to you and talk about the game we just lost. He'd talk about the stupid mistakes and the penalties. Some people take things harder than others. And that's what that was era. He took it harder than others. A loss was took harder. That toll, and that's why it's mentioned in this in this chapter about the end of era. That toll, that like you build up over 11 seasons at, at a place like Notre Dame just was, was constant. Um, and, you know, and it just beats you down, Beat, beats you down to the fucking ground. And it really is amazing that Brian Kelly is, you know, has been in Notre Dame this long. It really is amazing that, um, especially, I mean, especially in this era, I mean, Persegian did not have to deal with the internet. He didn't have to deal with, uh, with a whole, with a whole lot of um, uh, unco- let's, uncooperative beats. Uh, you know the 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 Notre Dame beat and the press and stuff, and just America's outlook at Notre Dame was a lot different than it is now. And I think Brian Kelly ha- has to deal with three times, four times more shit than Era ever did regardless of the wins and losses. I mean, just, it's just a harder job. It, and it's a, I think it, t- it takes a bigger toll on you. There's so much more demands uh, on Kelly. And so Kelly's time, you look at this and, and the greatness of era and the, and the, that time in Notre Dame, you know, beat him down <clears throat> and then look at Kelly now. And we're talking, you know, that kind of starts extension through 2024. You know, we've talked about like, he may not, he may not leave. I mean, he may get a, yet another extension. Um, you know, I don't know, but I mean, it just kind of feels like, you know, that he could, uh, that, that he's, he found a, uh, found a way at Notre Dame to keep moving. So anyways, um, there was a, there's another kind of, I, I thought this was pretty funny. Um, 
when uh, when Eric came to Notre Dame, he hired a uh, defensive coordinator, Johnny Ray, and the way he hired him is just I, I just can't imagine this happening uh, in college football nowadays, especially for these big teams. So what happened was um, the National Convention of Football Coaches, which is a big, which is a big kind of like hiring kind of a thing. Like there's a lot of stuff going going on at these conventions about you know coaches and and you know looking to you know to move spots or move move up in the world and all all the stuff blah 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 blah. Well, in in June of '63, Era was getting before he got to Notre Dame. Era was getting an award. Uh, for what he was doing at Northwestern, and Ray was getting one for, I think he said John, yeah, he was at John Carroll. Uh, he was getting one at a, for the same award for a smaller school. And there was this weird kind of thing where about Ray giving a speech there, and so and Era just like kept calling, kept calling him about how, what kind of speech he's going to give, and and, and you know, according to. To this book and a few other things, this Johnny Ray. He <clears throat> number one, he, his mouth was running most of the time, uh, and he was like one of the few guys like that would talk back at all to Era. <clears throat> so he, he's kind of pissed because Era's been up his ass about this, you know, the speech at this convention uh, in June, and he, he kept calling about this and all that. So you know, finally, you know, the time comes and it's in December. And he Ray gets this this message to to meet with Era, uh, in, in his hotel room, like eight o'clock sharp, like be there. So Ray's going in thinking this is about this fucking speech, which is just pissing him the hell off. Uh, so it says at eight o'clock, I walk into his hotel room, and he's sitting on his bed with his shoes off. <clears throat> I sit down and say, "Don't worry, my speech is ready and it's good." He says, "That's not it. I want you to work with me at Notre Dame." He says, and Ray says, I can't. I just got a job at Wake Forest. He gets up and starts shaking his head. Talking about Era. Oh, no, 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 he says. That won't work. You're, you going to Wake Forest as a Catholic is worse than me going to Notre Dame as a Presbyterian. I tell him that I don't know if I can be an assistant coach anymore after being a head coach. Well, Arrow was a salesman. He tells me that if I go to Wake Forest down in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, my career will be buried. He goes to the phone and calls the coach who had just been his, been fired from Wake Forest, Jerry Hildebrandt. You know, Jerry isn't going to say anything good about the place now. Eric gives me the, re- the receiver, and Jerry tells me, there aren't any players down here, and being Catholic in this place isn't easy. Eric hangs up the phone and looks at me. What'd I tell you, he says. You hate it down there. Then he makes me call my wife and tell her we're moving to South Bend. She was really surprised. Then I had to go make my speech. That's the way Eric did everything right now. Ray became the Irish defensive coordinator and assistant head coach. I just I, think about that for a minute. This man had a job as a head coach at a at Wake at a Power Five school, basically. I mean, even then, which I mean, Wake Forest has never been good, but it's Wake Forest, and. Era just basically told him no. <laughs> Tell your wife that you're coming to work for me. I just, it's just it's kind of just amazing. Uh, you know, I, that doesn't happen at like Michigan State, even if Era's there. I mean, it, the Notre Dame poll has something to do with it, but it's just insane. I mean, think about how we hire. Just, think about what we just went through getting Marcus Freeman to Notre Dame. That's just. Uh, are you going to get Marcus Freeman to, you know, turn down the head coaching job at at Wake Forest to be the defensive coordinator at Notre Dame? No, that's why he's there. He's going to Notre Dame to get that Wake Forest job. So it's a different world. It's a different way of doing things. And just the way the the balls era had here. I mean, just the, the pure set of balls on him to to talk a guy out of um, doing that is. It, Pretty intense. Um, so, I know in other in other episodes we talked about the uh, how much the, uh, the the Meeker penalty against Southern Cal 
uh, the one that cost Notre Dame undefeated season national championship, how much that affected um, Era and Moose uh, and the Colonel, for that matter. Uh, it, it, does talk, it does say something in here about um, Johnny Ray talking about uh, the lousy holding penalty. I'm, I'm eager. I mean, that, that was a... Uh, you want to talk about penalties, and this is recording after a uh, watching the Green Bay Packers kind of get hosed uh, by the refs because they had some love affair with Tom Brady. But uh, it just, just it's just funny. I mean, it, it's sad and it sucks, but it's just, it's kind of funny, like how much this shit like gnaws on people. Um, so, <laughs> I mean. I, I don't know. I, I would just, I would love to hear, uh, I would lo- I, to hear the guys from that area, like er, ask them about that penalty. And you'd probably get like a, a 45 minute soliloquy about, about it all. Um, which is just funny as hell. Um, so it, it does kind of, so then it goes on to talk some more about, um, you know, just the era. I mean, again, like how much this, you know, all affected him. How you know, how he dealt with it as a person. Um, let's see here. It says, uh, his pep talks were prepared very carefully. He'd write it all down and study it. But when it came out, it sounded spontaneous. I was at Notre Dame briefly under Leahy, and I coached against other men, including Bear Bryant. I can't remember who's talking here. Oh, it must be Wally Moore. Uh, but Era could just could adjust to things during games better than anyone I ever saw. He would talk to the players and ask them questions and learn what they were doing out on the field and make the adjustments right then. Leahy would get so worked up at the games he couldn't do that, which, like I tell you, maybe that's why Frank's my favorite because I, I feel Frank. Like just being so like insanely like into the your emotions just take, take you over so much that it misfires your brain. Uh, I, I can feel that. I can feel that. Um, so it says, when I think back to Frank Leahy, I laugh. He had two things he always said to you when he saw you, no matter what. How's your weight, lad? How's your family? That was it. My answer to the first one was 185 pounds, and to the second one, fine. One day, Leahy sees Johnny Lujak on campus and says, How's your weight, lad? Lujak says, 284 pounds, coach. Frank says, and how's your mother? She's dying, Johnny says, Frank nodded and just kept walking. He was thinking about football and didn't hear a thing. He was the most concentrated man I ever saw. <laughs> I mean, for, for Lou Jack to like, just say that in itself, like you knew that he wasn't paying attention. So that's why, that's why you say what you said. Cause you knew that, I mean, he's not going to say anything. So yeah, 285 pounds, mom's dying. Okay, Lottie. And you know, Again, this different eras for these coaches, the different kind of ways that you know that they do it, how it goes about, how and how players react to it all. Um, and you know, I just God, he was just so when Notre Dame traveled to other games, uh, he said I stayed in the suite with Era. The other coaches got to go out the night before the game, but I was stuck with him. We'd sit in the room and he'd say, "Are we ready?" Yeah, I'd tell him, we're ready. He'd ask me that 20 times. He left nothing to chance, drove me crazy. He'd sit there and think up the most bizarre circumstances. If our three quarterbacks got hurt, for example, what would we do? He'd, ha- he'd always have to have a disaster quarterback around who can hand off the ball. And then we'd have to have a backup for him. He's the most thorough man I ever saw. And so, I mean, I think nowadays some of that seems more natural. Like, I think fans think that way. And, you know, and... So, like getting down to your fourth string quarterback is, I think that's more of a common thing nowadays than it was back then. I mean, you you probably have a third string quarterback there, anyways. So you get through those three, it's your walk on. The next one's a walk on who's who's took snaps, who's handed off the ball. I mean, so kind of like oh, that's all built in, but it really kind of wasn't the way um, it was then. Um, but you know, and that's what these huge ass rosters. So, um, I, you know, I don't know, but. Uh, it just, it's just another detail, just another thing about Era, uh, just beating it home about what he's, um, what he's all about. 
<clears throat> there's a there's a story too here about um oh hell I mean, it just kind of like kind of how Arrow is just kind of a dick sometimes and, and not like a dick like not not a dick like uh like a jerk but just kind of like fucking with guys um let's see <laughs> it says uh Arrow was Arrow's a strict martinet he says I love the guy, but whenever he lost a game, oh boy, he had to walk on eggs in his office for a week. He didn't say a word. He had a sense of humor, but he could be a SOB when he had to. And this is from Moose. Uh, it says, Moose, when Digger Phelps came to Notre Dame to coach the basketball team, Era hid his office furniture in one of the bathrooms. Digger couldn't find it for a week. I love it. I fucking love it. I don't expect that from from someone like Eric. I, I just, I just, I wouldn't. And I, I, so I found that, that bit of info, uh, pretty cool. I, I thought it was pretty cool. Like, so, Oh, you're the new uh, basketball coach coming to Notre Dame. Uh, yeah. Good luck finding your fucking office. And the fact that back then, I, I think if you couldn't find your office furniture, someone would get you office furniture like that next day. Uh, the fact that it was gone for a week, uh, is also, you know, kind of, you know, pretty funny. Um, God, is there anything more out of here that we really need to talk about? I don't know. Um, all right, so I'll, I'll read this passage as kind of like an ending here, and th- this is from uh, from Dave Gasper, uh, All American tight end for for Notre Dame. Everyone knows who he is. Um, it just, but it just talks about like, okay, so I'll read it and it'll make sense. I never wanted to talk to the head coach. My whole career, in high school and college and in the pros, I tried to avoid that. In Notre Dame, I showed up every day, my last three years, with my head shaved. Era said I couldn't wear my hair long. I wanted to cut it once a year, so I decided to cut it all off. Era understood his purpose. Fans want to be entertained, but players want to be coached. We thought he was impersonal, but he was really just very organized and kept things simplified. I played for John Madden and Bud Grant and Tom Flores in the pros. But Era was the most organized I was ever around. He didn't try to get in your head and talk to you very much. I really like that. How far can you get into the head of an 18-year-old? He didn't beat you up, and he didn't overpractice you. His workouts were humanistic. He was the first person to understand that you don't need to get in better shape for the football season by hitting people in the spring practice. You just get injured. So he brought in dummies and let us hit them. My senior year, I was elected captain of the team. Eris said, no long hair, no facial hair. I went into him and, and said we wanted to stay in touch with the student body and what they were involved in. He listened to me. He let us go out and socialize more and let us grow mustaches. He understood that the most important question was whether you played hard on Saturday and played with discipline. Over time, he relaxed a little. And when something wasn't working, he would change his mind. He let me be me. I just wanted someone to tell me what to do and then leave me alone. He did that. I made only one mistake my senior year when I jumped offside in the Sugar Bowl. When I came back to South Bend after the game, I went into the athletic department and saw him in there watching films of the games. His first words to me were, why the hell were you offsides? I just learned to stay away from him, and that was okay with Era. He only made four or five comments to me the whole time I was at Notre Dame. He didn't mess with my mind. He knew what you went through as a football, football player. I've seen Aaron in recent years, and I've always sent him a Christmas card when we're together. He's still the coach, and I'm still the player. And so I'm just leaving you with that. So, again, the, the, the whole point of the chapter was to beat down, was, was to show, like, this mental exhaustion of Era. And it really didn't end with that. I mean, it, it, it didn't show all that. It, it just showed that his obsessive nature with being the coach at Notre Dame. And that's just, you know, I guess that just kind of comes along with the territory. So that's that. So <laughs> thanks for hanging out with me here for, uh, for this book cast. We'll get back into it. Jude shamed me into doing the, to get back and finishing this book up. Uh, since, like I said, we didn't, obviously we didn't finish it. Uh, so we'll get, get to uh chapter 17 i think 17 and 18 next time around uh sometime next week uh and so yeah so let it let me know 
Let me know what you guys uh, like, don't like about this. Again, go to the Apple Podcasts uh, and leave a rating review for the OFT Podcast. And you can talk about this this particular show in there, too, if you like. Um, and that's it. So I'm going to wrap this up and get the hell out of here. And uh, until next time, go Irish. <laughs>